Good morning, church. So good to be with you all. If you're new with us, we have been opening up the most influential letter that's ever been written. I know that's a big statement, but I don't think it's, I think it's without question. Uh, this letter over the last 2,000 years has had more of a profound impact in changing people's lives than any other. Uh, it's written by a man named Paul, specifically to a group of Christians living in the city of Rome. Today we're going to cover the last section in chapter one, but before we get into it, I want to pray. If you've read ahead, you probably know why we need to pray. I don't want my words to unnecessarily be a distraction. In other words, I don't want to mess this up, okay? If you've been around for any length of time, you know what we do here at Illuminate is we open, the, we open up the Bible and we go through verse by verse. So what that means is there's no place to hide. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, if it's in the text, we teach it because we believe in the full counsel of God. Having said that, let me also say this. I have come to learn and seen in my own life that very often the hardest truths produce the softest hearts. You understand what I'm saying? The hardest truths very often produce the softest hearts. So I'm gonna ask you to pray with me. Father, that is my desire is that you would just smooth over whatever bumpiness there may be in my words. And above all, Lord, I just pray that your, your spirit would enlighten the hearts of everybody in the room, including myself, and that, Lord, as we step into the text, and sometimes it feels tough, difficult, messy, but it's all there for a reason, and that is to bring correction where it needs to be, and we all fall under that. No one escapes that, Lord. So I pray that you would speak in a powerful way through your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so here's where we're at. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church in Rome. He's never been there. They don't know him, but they know him by reputation because formerly he was a Christian terrorist, and he's gonna to talk to you about that. So when he visits, some people are gonna be like, is this guy legitimate? I mean, what message is he gonna bring? And that's why Romans is packed with theology because it's Paul's way of saying, this is what I believe about humanity, about sin, about God, about Jesus, about salvation. That's the thrust of the book. Now, in chapter one, chapter two, in the first part of chapter three, Paul demolishes self-righteous humanity. And when I say self-righteous humanity, what I'm talking about is actually you and me. He begins with the God deniers, moves on to those who think, well, I don't deny God, I acknowledge that there is a God, but I'm just a moralist. He flattens you as well. Then he moves on to the religious people. And he says, you don't get away either. Because you see, you're not as good as you think you are. There's darkness inside your heart. But you're hiding it through your self-righteousness. Everybody is level, right? Additionally, lest you think that his criticism comes from a place of his own self-righteousness, or if you feel like Paul is taking the moral high ground, like he's got some sense of moral superiority over others, nothing could be further from the truth. He writes another letter to the church in the city of Corinth. This was a, 
this church was jacked up. I don't know how else to put it. I mean, people are getting drunk off of like communion wine and there's this guy that has an illicit relationship with his stepmom and everybody in the church is like, isn't this awesome? We celebrate, isn't this great? And Paul says, time out. Let me explain what God wants for the Christian community in terms of doctrine and purity and holiness. But this church was unique. In the city of Corinth, there were unique vices on display. And unlike in other places, in fact, the Greeks had a word, Corinthadzai, which meant to act like a Corinthian. So archaeologists have actually unearthed sidewalks that have stamps, and these stamps represent the different paths you can go down, and they will take you to the various houses of vice. What is your vice? What is your pleasure? Follow this sidewalk. The cult of Dionysus was there, and they were in part known as a female sex cult. Way of worshiping God was by having sex with temple prostitutes in the city of Corinth. And in this city, this group, small group of Christians begins to grow. So you have all kinds of people walking through those church doors. I wouldn't be surprised if some are temple prostitutes. Some have visited the temple prostitutes. And they're hearing about this Jesus, and things are beginning to make sense because it does appear that Jesus did what he said he was gonna do. He came back from the dead. And so as he's writing to this, this group of believers, and they need to be encouraged, he says, let me speak from my heart. Let me tell you my own story and what God did in my life. And he says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse eight. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he, Jesus, appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. You're like, time out. This guy gave as much of the New Testament. Is this some false sense of humility here? N no because he explains why he feels this way. He says, because before I met Jesus, I persecuted the church of God. This must have been very hard for him to admit. You know, I think there are things from the past, for some of us, it's just, it's hard for those words to come out of our mouths. And yet this is Paul saying, I was a Christian terrorist, and then Jesus got a hold of me. And is about, he's about to tell you in a, a few minutes, we were all formerly somethings. Everybody that walks through the church door, you were formerly something. And Paul says, me too. What's yours? What's yours? Me? I sought to kill Christians. If you read the book of Acts, he oversaw the death of the first Christian martyr, a dude named Stephen. Paul was there. He's like, so I get it. I'm not preaching as if I'm holier than you. But I had this radical encounter with Jesus and something entered my life. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. The word grace is God's unmerited favor. So Paul says, when God chose me, he did so not because he saw anything good in me, but he chose me in spite of where I was at, man. I was on the wrong path. And God's like, you, you're gonna be on my team. God didn't waste that grace. I took it to heart and I acted on it. Now, you know the rest of the story with the Apostle Paul. Perhaps he went on to be this incredible church planter. I've said it before. Church planters like me, we gotta bow down to a guy like Paul. City to city, planting churches, planting churches. Many of these cities, he would have to go in and share the gospel, get people saved, and then plant the church. On the contrary, I worked hard 
harder than any of them. Why, to prove myself to God? No, it was not me, but the grace of God that is within me. Man, this is the proper motivation in life if you're a Christian. There's no room for pride, arrogance, hubris, ego, whatever you wanna call it. Because you understand that the grace of God comes into your life and that becomes so motivating for you to extend that grace to those around you. And so you have to understand that what Paul writes in Romans, what we're about to read, is in light of how he sees himself and his own past. And then he launches into it, chapter one. And the first group he addresses are those who deny the existence of God. And he says, here's the deal, man. You all are without excuse. And you kind of know it. Because God has given you evidence to help you understand that there is some kind of supernatural supreme being out there. How so? Through creation, through nature, through what has been made. Simply put, I elaborated more last week, simply put, design, order, imply a designer. The more sophisticated and complex the design, the more intelligent the designer. <sighs> nature reveals it, man. I mean, just look at a DNA strand. <sighs> Life is incredibly complex. If Darwin had the microscopes we have today, forget about it. The simple cell theory, nah. There's no such thing as a simple cell. A lot could be said there, but Paul says there's evidence. The fingerprints of God are everywhere. So why would people deny it? He tells, by the way, Romans chapter one is incredible social commentary. Why would people deny it? Well, he says they suppress the truth about God, the existence of God, God's reality, by their wicked actions. In other words, they don't want there to be a God. And it makes perfect sense because if there is a supreme being, if there is a God, it stands to reason that he's good and he probably has something to say with how I live my life. But I don't want anybody telling me what to do. So I'll just deny his existence and there's no accountability that will come to me. So they suppress the truth and they keep on living this wicked lifestyle. Additionally, he says, there is a predictable trajectory when one denies God. And at the heart of it, it's all about worship. Because we were created to worship. You're either gonna worship God or you're gonna worship something else. I said it last week. Isn't it interesting? Whenever some remote, isolated tribe is found in the middle of nowhere, guess what they discover? They worship. They might worship the rocks, the trees, the sky. They worship nature. We were created to Worship, to worship is to ascribe worth to something. And so what Paul goes on to explain is, if you deny God, you're still gonna worship something. You might not worship God, but you're gonna worship something. Guarantee you, you're gonna ascribe ultimate worth to something. And so on Paul's day, it was, began with man-made idols. And at first, they took on the appearance of humans, okay? And they'd bow down to them, and they'd worship them, and they'd pray to them, and please bring rain on our crops. But that's not enough. There's always this, this denigration, there's this downward spiral to man's worship apart from the worship of God. And so then they move from worshiping what look like humans to worshiping animals. And then that's not enough. And so then they have to worship reptiles. They're literally worshiping snakes and lizards. It's a downward trajectory. And then Paul says the ultimate expression of misplaced worship, I'll give you an example. That's what he's about to do. I'll give you an example there is another misguided exchange that takes place. 
and it has to do with human sexuality. Chapter one, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of, about God for a lie. This is um, Garden of Eden languaging here. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They exchanged the truth of God for life. That's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. God said, hey, the garden is all yours, all the beauty, everything. Just stay away from this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A dark power enters the scene and says, I'm about to have you exchange God's truth for a lie. Are you ready? Did God say that? He is not to be believed. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And what happened? They started, they worshiped the words of that slithery creature rather than the creator. Great commentary. And that's exactly what you see happening today. So you're like, well, wait a minute. In our own time, what is it that people worship most? I mean, I don't see anybody bowing down. I've been to other countries, third world countries. You go to some part, you go to Guatemala, Haiti. They are literally bowing down to figurines that they make. We're more sophisticated than that. What do we worship? What do we worship? Ourselves. <laughs> Man, we're good at this in the West. We're good at this, uh, when you begin to worship yourself, inevitably, you will become self-indulgent because ultimately it's a worshiping of the flesh. What does this look like? It takes many different forms. Some obvious, some subtle. For example, the Apostle Paul actually says that some people have as their God their stomachs. That is a form of worship. They overeat, overindulge. Alternatively, some people overexercise because their God is their body and they want other people to worship what they worship. There is another form of worship that takes place, manifesting itself in various forms of sexual impurity, pornography, and more. Verse 26, for this reason, that is the refusal to worship God, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men Likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. There's a couple of interesting words that Paul chooses to use. And the language is very specific. Remember, Paul was brilliant. He, was, he studied another master teacher, Gamaliel. This guy's super bright. He's thoughtful, inspired by the spirit. He uses words carefully. Now, I was actually surprised at this. I hadn't seen this before in this way. There's a couple of Greek words that I would have expected Paul to use, but he doesn't use them. For example, the more common Greek word for woman is gynaka. The more common Greek word for man is andros. He doesn't use those words. The Greek word he uses for woman is thileai. And the Greek word he uses for man 
is uh, arsenos, arsenos. Arsenos literally means male. Thelei literally means female. So this is interesting because what he's doing is he's speaking in biological terms. In other words, think, think of it as XX and XY. You die, you get planted in the earth, they dig up your bones and they're gonna discover you're either XX or you are XY. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying that there is an exchange that goes on. What is natural for unnatural. I'm gonna try to keep this at a PG-13 rating, kids. Why does Paul use homosexuality as an example here, okay, of this misguided worship? I think the answer is actually pretty simple and straightforward. He does so because it should be an obvious rejection of God's natural design and order for human sexuality. In other words, what I'm saying to you is that the parts fit together, male and female. Paul says, this is natural. And for you to deny this, well, now you're denying reality. That's the reason why he uses that example. Now, having said that, I'm gonna be very quick to share this with you, okay? We have people at Illuminate Community Church who have same-sex desires. We have individuals who are questioning their identity, okay? And there are many, many of us who have people that we love dearly, friends, family members, neighbors, who identify with the LGBTQ community. This would not be a surprise to the Apostle Paul at all. In fact, I think he would expect it. You go back in time 2,000 years to the church in Corinth, and the church is filled with, we were all formerly something. One more thing. When I was teaching through the book of Genesis, chapters one, two, three, I met with several folks who call Illuminate Community Church their church family and home. Those that are, that, are, that have same-sex desires, from young high school age all the way up to some in their 60s. And I said, here's what I'm gonna be teaching, and God creates the male and female for the purpose of uh, a, this natural union. And, and as I do so, I want to, I wanna be your voice. What do you want your church family to know? Three things. Here's what they said. Number one, they said, Jason, give us the truth and do not sugarcoat it. We want to know what the Bible says. Number two, tell them we need a family. We need a place where we can come and be honest and be vulnerable and feel like we're not being judged. And number three, the struggle is real. The struggle is very, very real. 
These might be some of the boldest people in our congregation as they attempt to live lives in purity and in holiness. And having these kind of conversations in church can be very difficult for them. So I said, let me be your voice. And as one of your pastors, the church is filled with formerly somethings. It would come as no surprise to the Apostle Paul. A few months ago, I introduced a good friend of mine to you. His name is Gary Ingram. He runs a ministry called Love and Truth Network. He actually did a conference here. Gary lived as a gay man for many, many years, was a bartender in San Francisco. And through the compassion and love of a couple of Christians that entered into his life, he responds to the gospel. They spoke the truth and they were gracious about it. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Those two things have to go hand in hand because grace makes truth acceptable. They spoke grace and truth to him. Fast forward now, and Gary is married to a beautiful woman, and he has two beautiful boys. And he would tell you this if he was standing here. In fact, he did say this when he was here. He said, yes. He said, I, I will, to a greater or lesser degree, I will have this temptation in my life. Okay? But so what? Big deal. What's your temptation? Okay, dude, your temptation is probably the girl in the office that's not your wife. That's your temptation. Okay, we all have temptations. So don't, he's like, don't make a big deal about mine. Like mine is any bigger or any greater. You still have your temptations and I have mine. It's like, dude, Gary, that's some truth, man. And he has his own ongoing sanctification happening. And Gary would tell you that if someone would not have spoken truth to him in grace, he would have missed out on the three greatest blessings in his life, his wife and his two boys. He's like, I'm so thankful that somebody stepped into my world and cared enough to speak the truth in love. So allowing the text to speak for itself is to say that Paul is giving an illustration of what happens when people suppress the truth of God. At the same time, we must understand that these verses are not meant to clobber anybody because some people refer to this passage as the clobber passage. That's not its intention. In fact, it's the opposite. The intention of the passage is to show love. The Bible says the goal of our instruction is love. The hard root of the issue for Paul is this. You're worshiping the wrong thing. So now you, everybody has to deal with that. You're worshiping, you're ascribing ultimate worth to the wrong thing. And one might say, well, that's not my struggle. Same-sex attraction isn't my struggle. Okay. Lest you think you get off unscathed, continue. Verse 28. And since they, the suppressors of, of the truth, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Buckle up. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are, this never happens in church, gossips, slanderers. 
Envy, have you ever wanted something that somebody else has? You know, maybe you don't even want that. Maybe it's just that they have something, you don't even want it, you just don't want them to have it. That's really insidious. I don't even want what you have. I just don't want you to have anything. It's envy. Jealousy and envy are two different things. Murder. Well, I would never take another life. Well, Jesus kind of comes into your world in Matthew chapter five and he says, okay, let's talk about the heart behind the action. The heart, the thought, the attitude is this. You think that life is worthless. You think it's worthless. Maybe you just lack the opportunity to take that life in a way that's clean, in a way that you can get away with it. But have you ever wished somebody wasn't on the planet anymore? That's the heart of murder. Strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders. Not even halfway through, and everybody's just demolished. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. Whoa! Got an amen. <laughs> Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they, this is interesting. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Wait, time out. Like, take your foot off the gas. What? Basically, what Paul's gonna go on to do, he's gonna prove this point in a couple chapters. He speaks to his Jewish brothers, and he's like, you all think that you're in with God because you have the law. Like, God gave you the law. You think that's what saves you by applying it. No, that just brings you self-righteousness. More to the point, the law doesn't gain you entrance into heaven. Well, what about those that don't have the law? How do they know right from wrong? And Paul will say, here's how. You, you all know what you're doing. You know. You know. Something ain't sitting right with you. You don't need to have it written because Paul says it's actually written on your heart. That's what we call conscience. No, that's wrong, and you know it. And you're suppressing, you're suppressing that truth by continuing to act in that way. You're just keeping it down, you're stuffing it down. I told you this is great social commentary. Not, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And then he ends, I'm gonna come back to that in a second. So after making homosexuality the obvious example of misplaced worship and what it leads to, he then is like, whoa, no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't think you have the moral high ground here because there's something in this list that gets you. We've all done something to put Jesus on the cross. C.S. Lewis said this, if anyone thinks that Christians regard the state of being sexually immoral as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. He then goes on to mention what the pleasure and pursuit of power has done to humanity. Hatred, backstabbing, backbiting, gossip. He concludes with this. That is why a cold, self-righteous, moralistic person who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither. God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. You see that phrase over and over, what does that mean? It's horrifying because basically it means this, God is gonna let us go as far down that dark path as we wanna go. And at the same time, we will experience God's truth in the form of you reap what you sow. That's why Paul says they receive in their persons, in themselves, the due error of their ways. How so? Well, let's let our time speak 
to what Paul is saying now. In 2022, the top seven infectious diseases amongst teenagers were cold, flu, strep throat, mono, gonorrhea, and syphilis. According to the CDC, fact check me, there are 20 million new cases of STIs, sexually transmitted infections, diagnosed every year. Half of those are among teens and young adults between the ages of 15 and 24. That's 10 million STIs. Newly diagnosed between the ages of 15 and 24. According to the World Health Organization, one million people every day are diagnosed with a sexually transmitted infection. Now, let me be quick to say language is important. This is not a sickness because some people look at this and go, oh, that, that's a sickness. It's actually not a sickness. It's a sin. It's all sin. Every single thing in those lists, they're all sins. And that's important to distinguish because the Bible tells us sin can be overcome. Here it is, 1 Corinthians 6. Same author. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You see, if you think differently, you're actually deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I love this line. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, set apart, you were justified, declared righteous, validated in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Such were some of you. One last dimension I wanna highlight. Though they, knew, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they also, yes, yes, more, 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 more. They give approval to those who practice them. Interesting insight, uh, I think, into our own culture. They delight in seeing evil and encourage it. I don't know, man, which is worse? The emperor who throws the gladiators into the arena or the crowd who is shouting, more, more, more. Ah, both are supremely guilty, but it makes one it makes one think about our own contributions. Christians are not immune from the culture's influence. You read the list of vices and it causes us all to ask, what am I going along with? What am I applauding? What am I laughing at? What am I participating in? What am I engaging in? What, what am I consuming? Yeah, well, I would never do that. Man, your defenses are down. Be very, very careful. Perhaps the main question for us is this. I've been asked this many times. As a Christian, as a Bible-believing Christian, what do I say? to those whom I deeply, deeply love. And they think that if I don't agree with them, I don't love them. What do I say? This is messy. You know, a friend of mine wrote a book called Messy Grace. I'm like, dude, your next book is Messy Church. Okay. It's challenging, you know. No easy answers other than to think what What's the alternative? 
to affirm, there's a difference between accepting and approving. You know, we accept everybody. As Christians, we accept everybody. But we don't approve of every action. Just like Jesus. Jesus, he didn't condemn, but at the same time, he didn't condone everything. To the woman who is caught in adultery, he says, hey, listen, man, not here to cast judgment on you and go your way and sin no more. Because I love you, I'm gonna speak a difficult truth to you and it's gonna be better for you. What's the alternative? If, if, you, if you affirm and if you approve, you are not telling them the truth and the truth is what sets you free, Jesus says. So ultimately, this is your, your, the test of your faith and the truthfulness of Jesus. Now, it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. Jesus was full of grace and truth. As I said earlier, grace makes truth acceptable. I go back to what my friend Gary said. If somebody wasn't willing to say the difficult thing to me and even risk jeopardizing the relationship, I would not be here. Think about this as well. Can you really say that you love someone without telling them no? I'm sorry, but no. Do you have children? You understand the principle. Pray, time, opportunity, and understand that there are those whom God has so transformed that they serve as examples for others to go, that's possible? (laughs) I didn't even know that was a possibility. And such were some of you. The Apostle Paul would expect people with all the various struggles being transformed. I'm gonna end with this. I was listening to Pierce, and I'm not, I have had to say this for the last two services as a qualification. I'm not attempting to make a political statement. If you think I am and you have an issue with it, email Steve J at Illuminate <laughs> and get right back to you. I was listening to Pierce Morgan interview Bill Maher. It's a fascinating conversation. Both of these dudes would, would describe themselves as progressive and liberals. And Bill Maher said something that got me thinking, kind of was like a key to unlock a lot of what I think is actually being spoken of in this text that's relevant to our time. So Bill Maher said, he's like, man, I'm an old school liberal. He's like, back in my day, all all we wanted was to be able to smoke weed and not be arrested. Now, in order to be a liberal, I have to be for the absolute demolition of women, biological men entering into the spaces that women occupy and taking over. For example, Miss Netherlands, biological man. Woman of the year, ESPN, biological man. They're demolishing women's sports. This is him, you can go back and look at it. These are his words. And he's essentially saying, this is insanity. Oh, poor old Bill Maher, he's right when he describes himself as an old school liberal. Because for modern day liberals, he is seen as archaic, outdated, and irrelevant. And the point is this, the culture has never ever had a collective voice that says this much and no more. 
progressives have to progress. Progressive ideology always has to be progressing, otherwise you're not making progress. And so modern day liberals will seem so archaic and outdated to those that come 50 years later. God's word is timeless. It is truth. And I'm telling you, this is the greatest commentary on culture today that you will find. And if you're open-minded and open-hearted, you know it to be true. So what's the answer quickly? About 2,700 years ago, this guy comes on the scene, his name's Isaiah, and he says, there's a lot of darkness in the world, but God is about to bring some light. And this light is gonna come in the form of a savior because people, the world, the planet, people need to be saved. From what? Themselves. From misguided worship. It's an epidemic, not my words. If you read recently in the last year, more and more child psychologists are saying, time out, pump the brakes. Do you know how many little kids are coming to us and they're absolutely disintegrating? They are hurting. The levels of anxiety and stress and they're just, they're hurting right now. In fact, what their plea was, we need help. We need more people to enter into this field because we can't handle all of them. You reap what you sow. You know, the ultimate expression of any worldview is its livability. And now we're getting to see the fruit of, uh, of misguided worship. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he says what? I'm the light of the world. You believe in me? You are the light of the world. And a city on a hill cannot be hidden. That'd make a great, great euphemism for a church. Illuminate. So that's the good news of the gospel. So what is the spirit of God saying to you? You might be here this morning and you're like, man, I've never heard this stuff before and I'm not sure that I like it. That's cool. I totally get that, man, because I was once where you were. And at times this stuff feels like sandpaper. That's the word of God smoothing over your rough edges for your own benefit. Don't resist it. I'm gonna have you bow your heads. God, once again, uh, an incredibly rich text that speaks loudly. God, may we listen. For those of us in the Christian community, may we take to heart our own spirits and attitudes. Perhaps we have our particular pet sins that we speak against, and yet in doing so, we minimize our own. Paul's point is that it's, look, it's misguided worship for all of us to some degree and in some way. Struggle is there for all of us. Father, I pray that your spirit would continue to do its work in our lives. And and Lord, where where there is any, in my own humanness, Lord, in my my own uh, weaknesses and and failures and and inadequacies, God, I pray that you would just disarm those and, and that your word would go forth in a, uh, in a way that, it, that only the words of a creator God can do. 
We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. God's people said.